0: Well, this morning we are uh, we're starting a new series, and uh, and the series is called TGIF. Does anybody know what TGIF stands for? Thank God I'm free. That could be what it stands for. It's uh, it's not kind of how we intended it here. Um, Anybody else? Any guesses? Thank goodness it's Friday. Thank God it's Friday. Um, so we're going to say it's thank God it's Friday. That's kind of what, we what we were going for there. Uh, and the Friday that it's referring to is Good Friday. And you might be thinking, well, this is a little early, isn't it, to be talking about Good Friday? Um, but the reality is uh, the cross is the central, uh, it's the central event in the Christian faith. Uh, And often we get to Good Friday and we kind of focus on the cross very specifically for that day. Um, But the the cross changes everything. And for a few years now, I've I've felt that uh, the depth and the mystery of the cross uh, is kind of lost on us, that we kind of simplify it, uh, that we don't recognize the the revolutionary scandal that it actually was and and what it means for us today. And so in this Lent, period leading up into Easter, we thought it would be great if we actually just spent a little bit more time than we usually do thinking about the cross, thinking about uh, what it is, why it's significant, uh, why it's changed the entire course of history, uh, and why we believe as followers of Jesus that it's changed our entire destiny. We attribute meaning to things based on content, and things uh, don't make a lot of sense without or uh, sorry, based on context. Things don't make a lot of sense when we take them out of their context. Uh, for example, you know, a seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful, but if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. Anybody lost right now? You have no idea what I'm talking about. Why are you lost? Because I'm I'm giving you a paragraph that is missing a central piece, that is missing its context. I'll give you one word, and that paragraph will make some sense. Think the word kite. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Every young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close, and if there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. See? The one word makes the difference, right? The contents actually unlocks the meaning of the paragraph. I believe that The the context of history, the context of the story of Scripture actually gives meaning to the cross. And when we focus just on the cross, just like we focus just on that one paragraph without the context, it's actually easy for us to misunderstand uh, what the cross actually accomplished, what it's all about. And we talk about it a lot, but when we talk about it without the larger context, it's easy for us to miss the depth of it. Uh, The Apostle Paul said, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world to look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say, it's all nonsense. Paul is saying there's a a context. And that if our world does not actually understand things at a deeper level, they're going to miss it. It's going to seem like foolishness. So this morning, uh, the sermon's entitled, The Backstory. And I want to actually zoom away, zoom out from the cross and look at a larger story that's at work. And in the coming weeks, we'll focus more specifically on what the cross has done. Uh, but I don't feel like just to dive in there right away, we're going we're gonna to miss a bunch. So we're going to get the context. So we're going to start in the beginning, which I think is a, which is a good place to start, don't you think? So in the beginning... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. Rushers are coming forward. If you'd like a Bible, just put up your hand. They'd love to give you one. If you don't own one, you can keep that one. So Genesis chapter 1 First book, first chapter in the Bible, we see this account that God, this, this creator, has actually created everything that exists. I just read the first four scriptures, or first four verses there, but if you keep reading, you'll get the sense that God is taking chaos, and He's bringing order. That God created heavens, and the earth, hers was formless and empty, darkness covered the deep waters, and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of waters. Then God said, "Let there be light. He speaks, and there was light." And God saw that the light was good and then he separated the light from the darkness and then you'll see that he separates land and water and creates animals and vegetation and eventually he creates humans. And there's this whole order that God brings in the beginning. This, this hierarchy that we'll get to in a second. He creates man, he creates woman, And it says that he creates them in the image of God. And he creates them, uh, I'm going to argue this morning, that he creates them with four uh, dimensions of relationship. The first dimension of relationship is that he created, you and I, he created humanity to walk in unity and harmony with God, our creator. That we see in the beginning that you know god and adam and eve they're talking they're in the garden together there's this uh, there's this unity that the the scriptures talk about they had this relationship with themselves this comfort with themselves this harmony with themselves they walked around in the garden they were naked they felt no shame uh, and as you'll see in a second, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, they did feel shame and that, that, uh, that identity was broken. There was something that happened there. They were created for relationship with the other. You see in, in Genesis chapter 2 that God creates Adam and he sees that there's something missing and so God creates a companion, a partner for him and creates Eve. And he saw that it was good. And so God's created us to be in relationship with other humans. And fourthly, God created us to have a certain relationship with the world, this ruling over creation. And you can read it in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that there was a mandate that was given to to Adam and to Eve to rule, to oversee God's creation, reflecting the glory of God to the world and turning worship back to God. In Genesis 1, verse 26, it says this, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Let me hear you say, "Reign over." Say it with some conviction. A little bit better. God created us to reign over creation, to oversee. So as I alluded to earlier, there's this this hierarchy that God created uh, the world with, that there's God the creator, and then he created people, and the people that he created were designed to rule and reign over creation, that they were given power and dominion and authority over creation. And then it says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. This word, image, uh, the Greek translation uses the Greek word, acone. Can you say acone? With some conviction, say acone. That sounds like a serious word right there cone, And this word is where we get the English word icon from. So God created an icon. He actually created a reflection of himself. So the the Greek word means a representation, a painting, uh, a statue, a reflection. Or even, uh, even it can even mean a copy, a living image, a likeness, an embodiment, a manifestation. That there was something in humanity that was made to look like God and reflect God, the creator, to the creation. I have this friend. Um, his name's James, and when I I met him, when I, he's one of my best friends. I met him when I was about fi- or sixteen. I met him, um, and the first thing that stood out to me when I saw James was that he had like this big bum chin. Have you have you seen people with those? Like the the line, uh, don't worry, I'm not saying anything to you I haven't said to his face. I said. Uh, He's like you're so offensive. Uh, so he's got like this big line in his chin, and it, like this, and, and it's a big chin. Um, and uh, you know, we weren't friends at first because he didn't appreciate me making fun of his bum chin. But eventually, he realized I was an okay guy, um, okay enough that he started inviting me. He lived in Brandon, I lived in a town an hour away, and so he started inviting me to Brandon on weekends, and I'd go and I'd visit his family, um, and then. Uh, and then I met his sisters, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> you've got a bum chin, too. And then I met his parents, and I'm like, ah, I see where this comes from. And now he has kids, and no, I, I haven't. <laughs> um, but there, there's a, his last name is Warkenton, and, uh, and I call it the Warkenton Chin, the war contention because there's something about the, his chin that is actually reflected and carried in his family. Um, and I don't want to condemn his kids because he's got cute kids and uh, I haven't seen the bump chin on them, but I wouldn't be surprised at some point uh, they would have one as well because it, it's in his genes. And, and when, you look at, when you look at his parents, you'd be like, oh, that, you remind me of James. And James, you remind me of your parents if you if had a relationship with them. And God created us in some way that when creation and others look at us, that we were actually intended to reflect God the Father, God the Creator. that there's something recognizable in us that reflects on God. So this expression, the image of God, the acone of God, is found in Genesis 5:1 where it basically reiterates the same thing we just read. And also Genesis 9.6, and the reason it's used in Genesis 9.6 is because it prohibits murder, don't kill one another, and the basis of that commandment was because other human beings are actually acorns of God. They're actually reflections of God. The astounding element of being an acone, of being made in the image of God, is not that humans are different from animals and the land, and the sky, and the stars, but they, and they alone, reflect in some way God, that they were like God somehow. And so, if we're supposed to reflect God, what does God do in Genesis 1 and 2 that gives us a clue to what it means to be an acorn? God creates, God rules, God speaks, God names, God orders, God establishes variety, he brings beauty. We also see that God brings Commandments and obligations. And, uh, and sometimes we look at the things that God says and, and they're just like rules, and God's trying to tell us what to do. But I would encourage us to see it actually in a, in a different way that God has given us instructions on how to be acorns, on how acorns work best. At Christmas time, uh, my son Luke uh, got a Lego car. And uh, it was one of those I don't know if you guys have seen them, like the new Lego. They're, uh, they're like vehicles, and they're quite intensive. Any parents gotten these? Sorry, can I get a can I get someone to testify here? Okay, got someone over here. Uh, okay, how many of you parents where your kids got them? you actually had to help your kids build them? They're crazy. They're, they're ridiculously hard. I spent, I don't know, five or six hours. Um, building this Lego car. And after I finished, and it's got like moving pieces and engines and pistons and things that move uh, when, when the whole vehicle moves. Uh, and I remember trying to push the car and the wheels, the wheels didn't move forward. Because um, it's not just like a normal Lego where you just put the wheels on and they just, they just spin there. They're actually connected to all of the guts of the car. And if the guts in the car aren't working properly, then the wheels don't move. Um, and so I actually had to go back through all the instructions to figure out what these wheels were connected to that were stopping the wheels from moving. And I noticed that the pistons in the engine weren't moving either. And so it's just like this, this stuck car that wouldn't go anywhere. Uh, and the point, and, and Luke didn't have very much fun playing with it, playing with a car that doesn't move, right? Uh, so I went back through the instruction booklet, like twenty, thirty steps, till I find the, till I found the, and, and I'm taking apart the car as I go, taking it apart, taking it apart, and finally I get to the point where I, I put something like the wrong way in it, uh, and then I had to reverse it and do it the opposite way. And then I ended up putting it all back together, and then finally it moved, and the pistons were rolling, and it was, it was glorious, but it was like a 10-hour affair. <laughs> when God gives us instructions, it's not about, hey, you know, I, I want to ruin your fun, I want to you know, just give you rules just for the sake of it. He's actually telling us how to live as acorns, how to represent Him. And when things are broken in our lives... He's actually given us guidance on how to recover and restore that which is broken. So a couple things about acones: They're made to live in union with God. They're made to be in communion with others. And we're made to participate with God in his creating rule, speaking, naming, ordering, um, all of that stuff. An acone is God-oriented, self-oriented, other-oriented, and creation-oriented. We were designed to walk in harmony in those relationships. And this idea of walking in harmony harmony is actually summed up in the, the Jewish word shalom. Everybody say shalom. shalom. So the idea of shalom means peace. It means wholeness. It means harmony. It means basically everything in the beginning, as in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve had this shalom. They were at peace with God. They were at peace with themselves, with each other, with creation, that things were actually the way they were intended to be and create the, the way things were functioning the way they were created to function. To be an icon means to be in right relationship with all in four, all four directions, to live in shalom, to understand our unique God given place, and not, not to abdicate that responsibility and re- rebel against the proper hierarchy that God set in place in the beginning. And we rebel against. The way that God has set that in place by either trying to be like God or trying to be less than what he created us to be. Are you guys following me so far? Okay. We've got a few people with me. So that's what happened in the beginning. That's, that's the precursor to the biblical story. If the beginning gives us context, so does the end. So you go to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. I won't read those chapters right now, but I would encourage you to go read them. Uh, but in summary, some of the things we see in Revelation 21 and 22 is that in the end, there's a new heavens and a new earth. It talks about the sea being gone. And sea in, uh, in, Jewish, in ancient literature and Jewish culture represented evil. Okay? So there's no evil, that the sea is gone, evil has gone. Uh, There's a new Jerusalem, Jerusalem representing the place where God resides, God's home with his people. There's no tears, there's no death, there's no sorrow, there's no pain. There's healing for the nations, not just for individuals, but for whole nations. There's no curse. There's no more night. Again, night representing darkness, representing evil. There's only light, and God himself is the light. And so he provides light for everyone. And it says that God reigns forever and ever. God at the top of the hierarchy is back, that he's reigning forever and ever. So that's kind of the picture we see in the end. So I want to suggest that if eternity is like X, like this, all this stuff, then life on earth ought to be lived in tune with X because this is where we're going. You guys agree? If this is where we're going, God is actually calling us to live in light of where we're going today, right now. And if eternity is like X, it can be said that with utter certainty that the cross is designed to prepare humans or acorns for X. If you were to take sin out of Scripture, you would have a four-page book. You got a four-page pamphlet, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. And that four-page book tells a story in and of itself. You know, the, the story begins in the garden, and it actually ends in a city. That the story begins with God creating acorns, people to help manage and, and look after his creation that are living in right relationship with him and others, have, have a, are, are solidly um, firm on their identity and who they were made to be, and they're, uh, and they're in right relationship with the world around them. That is, they live out that identity. They actually co-partner with God in doing what he's doing in the world. And we see this beautiful picture in Revelation 21, 22, where all people in all creation, everything is reconciled, coming back together, that there's no evil, there's no pain, there's no suffering, uh, that people are living the way uh, that God intended them to live. It's a great story. The problem is all the other chapters in the middle. So if you take sin out of the Bible, you got four chapters. So sin is a major problem in scripture. And this is introduced in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve decided that instead of listening to God's, you know, wisdom, rules, that they thought they would go about it on their own. That they would actually live out of relationship, out of sync with God, out of sync with creation. And you'll see that they move out of sync with each other. Uh, they, They become ashamed of who they are. And so they live out out of sync with themselves and their own identity. This is the problem of sin. And how we define the problem will shape how we understand the solution. Correct? So if the cross is made to be the solution to the problem in Genesis 3, then we actually have to understand the problem correctly if we're going to start to understand what the cross accomplished. And it's going to shape how we read the Bible, and it's going to shape how we understand what Jesus taught what he did and what he continues to do. So in that light, I want to I wanna challenge you. I want you to count how many times the players wearing white in this video passed the ball. Are you ready? I need, I need to know you're ready because this, this I'm, I'm trying to engage you, okay? So are you guys ready? Ready? You're going to count. Don't count out loud because it's a competition, okay? Because I, I like competition. So let's see who can get this right. Okay. Who got the right answer? 16. How many, how many of you guys got 16? Put up your hand. Okay. How many of you guys didn't get 16? We got a few. Okay. What were the other numbers? 14, 17. 17, 14, 18. The correct answer is 16. So good job for those of you who got 16. But my second question is, did anybody notice the gorilla? Put Put up your hand if you noticed the gorilla. Oh, you guys are good. Did anybody not notice the gorilla in the... We had a few that didn't notice the gorilla. Okay, for those of you that noticed the gorilla, how many of you guys noticed that the background changed color? Put up your hand. Did you guys notice the background changed color? Okay, let's... You want to watch it one more time? Let's, let's watch it one more time. Okay, wait for it. Wait for it. There's the gorilla. So some of you guys were counting. You didn't even notice the gorilla came and beat us. Checks really. And look at the background. It used to be red, and now it goes to yellow and then to gold. Interesting. See, the question or the problem at the beginning of the video, shaped your expectation and your approach of what you were looking for and informed what you saw. If we don't have the right expectations, we don't have the right question, we actually look at the cross, we look at scripture, and we, we are at risk at actually missing either the thing or missing something. Is the purpose of the Bible just to tell us that we're bad and that we need an escape plan? That we're bad and that we need to stop being bad and be good. How we understand sin, how we understand the problem is going to actually inform how we understand the cross. And if we're not asking the right question or looking for the right thing, we're actually going to miss the story that God is painting in scripture. So what is sin? Uh, This guy, who's somebody smart, and I'm not going to try and pronounce his name. Sin is culpable shalom-breaking. Sin is shalom breaking, these, these four relationships that we're created for. In some way, when we sin, we are actively breaking or moving against uh, the desired, uh, the way we were actually, God desired it for us to live in right relationship in those four directions. Sin is universal failure to achieve our human destiny, that we were created for a purpose. And there is this universal failure that's true of all human beings that we have failed to actually live up to the destiny that we were created for. In the Bible, sin does not mean something moral, but it denotes man's need of redemption, the state of the natural man seen in the light of his divine destiny. You see that these theologians are tapping into what we were talking about as being the, the acorns of God, the image of God, that there's a destiny, that there's that we were given a mandate and we failed in some way. So sin sin is shalom breaking. So if I'm a sinner, I'm I'm acknowledging that I've disrupted shalom with with my neighbor, with myself, with, with the earth around me. I've abdicated my responsibility and with my God. If I'm a sinner, I'm saying that sin is rebellion against the hierarchy that God actually intended that I at some point said, God, you're in my seat. I'm going to do this my own way. You know, when, you think, when we even think about addictions, what is addictions? Addictions is looking to the physical world to meet needs that only God can meet. That we've actually looked to something we're supposed to reign and rule over, and we've asked that to give us something that God actually created us for, to receive from him. Sin is participating in that which leads to death instead of that which leads to life. So it's being an active participant in something that's going in the opposite direction that God is intending to bring the whole thing. Sin is missing the mark, which is the actually the technical definition of the word sin in the New Testament, that we miss the mark, that we're failing to live up to our God-given vocation. Many of us have focused on sin as simply doing bad stuff. You know, I, I did some bad stuff, and I know I shouldn't have done it, and I got to be better, and... God, I need you to forgive me because I did something bad. And without, just bear with me here, Um, I don't want to lose track of the overall thought, Uh, but we've been significantly shaped by the thought of Plato, the philosopher Plato, who basically separated the material world and the spiritual world. And the main idea was that the physical material world is less than or bad, and the spiritual world is better and good. And that thought has actually significantly impacted the way that we uh, in the Western world understand scripture, understand sin, understand what it means to be in right relationship with others, with God. And so when the cross becomes about just being better, when sin becomes just about doing bad stuff, when we kind of attach the ideas of Plato and said that the physicality, we associate that with bad and spiritual is good, we end up having this assumption that God's goal for us must be to escape. That he's got a heaven tucked away somewhere and we're going to live in this world trying to be good enough, but we know that we're not really quite good enough, and so we need Jesus who was perfect and good enough uh, to take the punishment for our badness so that when Jesus comes back, he can help me escape from this bad world which is decayed and corrupted. Can can anybody relate to that storyline? Put up your hand if you've kind of heard something similar to that. We understood something similar to that. And there's definitely pieces of that that you will see in Scripture. It's not like all that stuff is really untrue, but some of it is. But the problem is that it misses, it misses, it misses the overarching storyline of scripture itself. Anti Wright says it like this. A lot of big words. We have Platonized or eschatology, which means we've separated the spirit and the physical. Eschatology means at the end. So we believe that at the end, God's gonna it's just gonna be spiritual. It's all gonna be spirit. We have moralized our anthropology. We think that to be human is just simply, to be a better human is about just doing, being good and not being bad. And we have paganized our soteriology. So soteriology is, is the, the idea of being saved or salvation. And N.T. Wright is saying the pagan idea, um, the, the pagan idea in the first century was actually was actually around Uh, angry deities, and people were trying to escape from an angry deity. And you say, because we believe in this this Platonized eschatology, this moralized anthropology, we've actually developed this idea that God is angry with us. He's so angry with us that he wants to kill us, but instead of killing us, he kills Jesus instead. And because he kills Jesus instead, now we get to go to heaven. And we're going to unpack some of that in future weeks. But all I want to say about that this morning is that this misses... Significantly, the storyline of Scripture. And because it misses it, we actually completely misread the cross. And if we're not, if we're not in error of completely misreading it, we we are in error of actually minimizing its significance. For so long, so many of us assumed that the point was being good and we were bad. So we needed someone good to take the punishment of our badness so we could escape to heaven. So we look for that story everywhere in Scripture. And yeah, there's pieces of it that you might be able to find and support it, but it actually misses it. It actually misses the gorilla. It misses the changing backdrop. We're looking here, and God's doing something different, and we're missing it. So... um, Wright goes on to say this. If I can get it right here. What the Bible offers is not a works contract, which is... the the false storyline I just talked about, but a covenant of vocation. The vocation in question is that of being genuine human being with genuinely human tasks to perform as part of the creator's purpose for this world. The main task of this vocation is image-bearing, what we've called acone, aconing. Reflecting the creator's wide stewardship into the world and reflecting the praises of all creation back to its maker. And Wright says that when God looks at sin, what he sees is what a violin maker would see if the player were to use his lovely creation as a tennis racket. So we can see this false storyline in in some of the songs we sing. For example, you know the song, Some Bright Morning, When My Life Is Over, I'll fly away. Sing with me. To that home on God's celestial soul i fly away. Keep going. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by bye, bye, So I love this song, but it's completely unbiblical. And I've sang it, and I've, I've played it on guitar, uh, I've jammed out to it, but it's, it's not the story of Scripture. God is not inviting us to fly away. God is not interested, he's not angry, he's not given up on his creation project to say, I'm just going to do away with it, and I just want to evacuate all of everybody's souls and to live in some disembodied utopia at another point in time, and we're just hanging on in the meantime until God comes and does his thing. That is not the biblical story. So, if we want to understand atonement, which is what the series is about, and it's a big word that basically means if you break it up, at one mint. How does God actually bring it all back together on the cross? If you begin your story in the wrong place, you begin with wrath, you end up telling a story of wrath being pacified. If you begin with death, you tell a story of overcoming death and having eternal life. If you begin with slavery, you tell a story of being liberated. But what are we saved for? Where and how you begin the story and where and how you end the story determines what story you're telling. If you start the story in Genesis 3, the point of the story becomes disembodied evacuation. If your story begins in Genesis 3. And the problem is most of the time we're telling the story we start in Genesis 3. Dude, you're a sinner. You got to repent, come to Jesus. That's the good news. That's the good news. <laughs> If you start a story in Genesis one, you realize that this is God's home and that he created he created it to because he wanted to inhabit it with us and for us to rule with him. If the story you're beginning starts in Genesis three, the central issue is the removal of sin. If the story you're beginning starts in Genesis one, then the central issue is the restoration of Shalom and the restoration of our human vocation. Genesis three is not how the story begins and is not how the story ends. The story begins in Genesis 1 and it ends in Revelation 21 and 22. If you begin in Genesis 3, you're telling people what they aren't. But if you begin in Genesis 1, you're telling people who they are. This is the good news. And so when we we invite people to repentance, now think about this. Repentance means returning, turning around. We're, We're inviting people to repent, to turn around What, just because they're a sinner and you did some bad stuff and you need to be better? No, you're actually returning to the beginning where you were living in harmony with your creator, with other people, with yourself and with the world. And this becomes a different story to invite people into because you can say, is there any point that you've disrupted Shalom, that you've rebelled against your creator, against other people? Is there any point where you've participated in things that actually bring death instead of life? And I think every honest human being can look at their, their life and say, I can recognize how I've given up my vocation as an image bearer of God. I can recognize in my life where I've actually worked against shalom. And it's a problem that I can't fix. And this is where we get to the crux of the matter, The cross. the things that were separated that disrupted this holistic harmonious living that God created us for is made right those things are made right at the cross so just quickly where are we going in the series colossians 1:15 Christ is the visible image of the invisible God that image is guess what which word Acone. So Christ completed the human vocation in a way that you and I could not. So he is the pure representation of what God is like. And in Romans 5, it says that Jesus is the second Adam. That kind of what went sideways in the beginning, Jesus is actually turning around on the cross. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says, just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like, or some manuscripts say, let us be like right now, the heavenly man. So you see this, this theme. Once you, once you kind of wrap your head around the actual biblical storyline, you will start to see the bigger story. Just as we were like the earthly man, like Adam, the people that gave up our human acone Vocation, we will someday be like the heavenly man, living in right relationship with God, others ourselves, and the world. Colossians 3:10. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. Second Corinthians 3:18. So all of us who have had that veil removed and see and reflect the glory of the Lord and the Lord who is the spirit makes us more and more like him as we are be, being changed into his glorious image today, right now, because of the cross. And we're not waiting till someday for Jesus to come back to take us away. We, we actually believe that God started a revolution 2,000 years ago that we're a part of today, that we're invited to be a part of. The atonement is designed by God to restore cracked acones, you and I, into glory-producing acones by participation in the perfect acone, Jesus Christ, who redeems everything, who, who redeems the entire cosmos. The problem is not just individualistic, but corporate. So one thing I just want to highlight quickly is, is I've talked a lot about individualism, like rebelling, participating as individuals. But what happens is when we have multiple acones, multiple human beings that were created to rule and to reign over creation that have actually rejected the created order, you have what develops as systemic corruption and injustice. So we look around in our world and we look, we look at systemic issues of sin. It's beyond individual issues that, that we actually have entire systems that are rebelling against what God wants to do in this world. Why does that happen? It's because God created us to be in community with each other, that he's given us rule and reign on creation, over creation. And when we operate outside of his mandate for us, we mess everything up. And it takes on a corporate reality. So that's why when Jesus comes and institutes a new way of living, he calls it the kingdom of God. A new way of living as a community of people. And a kingdom can actually be translated the reign of God Brings us back to this hierarchy, this, the, this group of people that actually voluntarily confessed that they have rebelled, repented and gone back, received forgiveness and said, God, I'm going to put you in your rightful place. I'm going to take my rightful place in my true identity as a son and daughter of God, made to be an acone of God, to represent you in all of creation. And I'm going to take that task seriously. The reign of God, the kingdom of God, a community of people under God's reign. I'm going to invite the, the band up. I'm going to invite you to stand. So to, to summarize this morning, I know there's a lot of content this morning, but, but I hope I'm painting for you a story in, as, we, as we are going in the coming weeks where the, where the cross is actually way more impactful, significant, life-changing, world-changing than we ever imagined it to be. The story is about renewing all things, restoring all things, reconciling all things, and it begins with the reconciliation between God and his acorns. And the day this revolution began was 2,000 years ago at 6 o'clock on a Friday evening, and it's still going. When we tell a story that begins in Genesis 1, most of us feel like or that we begins in Genesis 3, most of us feel like what we're doing actually doesn't matter. I mean, my job's important because my job becomes about trying to get people into heaven. And you guys make money, and you, and then you just give money to people that are doing the really important work that are, you know, pastors or missionaries that are, you know, helping people escape the physical world to get into heaven. But if your story begins in Genesis 1... Everything changes. Now, you're a teacher and you're starting to think, what does it mean for me to be an acone, for me to be an image bearer in my school, to represent my creator to my students? Your stay-at-home mom. Man, what an an opportunity that you have to actually disciple little acones, to change their world. You're businessmen. And now you get to think creatively, you know, the whole story ends in the city, which means that you know businessmen, builders, engineers were involved in the new kingdom that God's creating. What does it mean to, to do sustainable business models? What does it mean to actually incorporate uh, justice, God's justice, his shalom into how we think about business and how we treat people? that money doesn't become the bottom line, but actually God's kingdom becomes the bottom line That's going to change how I operate my business and how I treat others. Genesis 1 actually engages all of us and says, none of us are left out. We all have a purpose, but we actually can't engage and step into that purpose without the recon- being reconciled to God the Father. See, those four, those four relationships, they're not... Um, they don't all stand alone. They actually all flow from a relationship with God the Father. That's what the Bible teaches. That when we're made right with God, that actually starts to change everything else. And so our posture is continually coming back to God in repentance. Not because we did so much bad stuff. Maybe you did, and that's okay. Well, sorry, it's not okay. Um, Don't take that quote out of context. Remember, everything has a context. Um, It's not just that we we got to be good again, but it's actually repentance. God, I got to return to what You created me for, and I'm sorry that I stepped out of out of alignment with You. And thank You for Your forgiveness because of what Jesus has done, that I can actually walk in the fullness of that right now today, and I don't have to wait for someday. So I think even simply at the end of a service like this, and I will do it right now, I'll invite the the prayer teams forward. You know, you might think, well, you know, what do I need to why would I come forward for prayer? Well, I'll tell you why we come forward for prayer. It's because God wants to do something in us and through us today, and he's not waiting till someday. And repenting is not this bad word. I hope you hear the difference. Repenting in Genesis 3 becomes a bad word. Repenting in Genesis 1 is just returning, and it's like this exciting good news word. It's like, God, I actually want to be made right because I want to be about the things that you want me to be about. And so I'd ask you, As you look in your own heart, you know, are the ways that you're living out of sync with God, the Father, are there ways that you're living out of sync with others? Are there ways that you actually recognize that you're not living in your true identity as a son and daughter of God? You're masking, you're pretending, you're you're pacifying with things that actually aren't helpful. Is there ways that you're living out of sync with his creation? Where you feel like you've abdicated responsibility, that you've actually participated in systemic corruption and injustice, and you know I got to rethink how I actually, you know, live at work, the decisions I make at work. So we pray together because we actually want alignment in those things. We want to live out shalom. We want to take our role as acone seriously. And you might think, well, you know, I can go and pray on my own, and you can. And that's fine, but acorns were not created to live alone. It's not just God and me and God. If we abdicate the vulnerability with one another, we actually give up something about who we are. So I'm going to pray. And after I pray, um, I just want you guys to sing the you make all things new part. Um, and I want you to sing us out. Um, so I'm going to pray and we're, and they will sing the close and I invite you to, to come receive prayer if there's anything going on in your life, if you feel like you're a cracked acone in some way um, and you just want to repent, you want to return and say, God, I want to live in, in the right way. Lord, we thank you that you do not have a posture of anger towards us Lord, you have this anticipated posture where you're leaning in, where you created us for something and you are and you want to actually free us up to do what you created us for. Lord, we recognize that there's so many things that we do that get in the way of what you created us for. And Lord, we, we just repent of that. Lord, we return to what you designed us for, to be your image bearers. Lord, we want to live in a right relationship with you and others. We want to live out our live in right relationship with the world around us. We want to live in the security of our identity as your children. Lord, we thank you for the cross. That that changed everything. Lord, that we're not in this posture of waiting around, but you've actually come to us and you've said, okay, let's get on with it. And so this morning, church, I hope you hear the Lord saying, let's get on with it. I've got things for you to do. Pick up your vocation as an acone, as an image bearer. And Lord, we thank you that you are making all things new. You're reconciling, restoring, remaking all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming. See you guys next week.